0: Might as well take my TV.
1: Welcome to episode 1893 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. I know it's not the most pressing issue facing Major League Baseball or the world, but I think we need to do something about the flames for 95 mile per hour pitches on oh. baseball broadcasts because we're still getting flames, you know, the little gif-ish Kind of animation When yeah. someone throws a 95 mile hour pitch And you'd see the little flames up top To just denote that this is a, a fast pitch mm-hmm. And these days It seems like more often than not When I see 95 and I see the flames I think, oh, that was sort of a slow Pitch Because oh. I was watching I was watching Shohei Otani's last start and he was somewhat diminished. He was pitching with some sort of stomach bug. So he was not his usual self. But when he would throw 95 and he'd get flames for that, I'd think, well, this is not flame worthy. This is not particularly impressive for Shohei Otani if he throws a 95 mile per hour fastball. I'm thinking he took a little off that pitch, if anything. And I think that more and more because obviously we've had velocities skyrocket and flames have stayed on ninety-five mile per hour pitches. So there's been a great flame inflation. <laughs> just and, and Sam wrote about this for BP like in early 2016. And even then he was picking up on the fact that we needed to do something about the flame threshold. Yeah. And that was six and a half years ago. And the need has become even more acute. And yet, from what I can tell, the flames have not budged, at least on most broadcasts. So I, I wanted to mention this just to put it out there so that if any of our listeners have noticed that the broadcasts that they watch have maybe moved up the flame threshold. That would be interesting to know because I have not noticed that because Sam, he seems to think that the flames started in 2005. At least when he wrote that article, he was looking at Fox broadcasts of the World Series and the flames seem to have started in 2005. Although, as he noted back then, it was 96 was flames. Initially, when they first used the flames, which is weird because they've actually lowered the minimum for flames, ah. even though the average velocities and the peak velocities just keep climbing and climbing. So it seems to have been set at 95 now for more than a decade, and as we know, the velocity has ticked up just about every season and is at a record rate now. So if 95 was flame worthy in like 2011 doesn't seem like it should still be flame worthy now we need to adjust something and we just have not
0: would you prefer a scenario where the flames are sort of tied to league average fastball velo or would you like them to be player specific like you noted with otani Mm. That, you know, you see 95 in flames and you're like, well, that doesn't really match what we know about what Otani is capable of. But there are still going to be guys where it's like, oh, 95, that's flamey. So would you, right, would you like it to be indexed to the individual pitcher so that you huh. are aware of his flames or would you prefer... <laughs> That it be sort of set to a league standard flame, so that you're like, oh, ah, that's a really fast pitch. Because I can (laughs) see the argument for both, right? Where it is visually sort of a a good visual indicator for a given pitcher that you know he has his he has his his heat today versus Mm -hmm. not. But that is probably going to not translate for a broad audience, right? Right, like you. The only person who you probably uh, observe with both greater frequency and diligence is is maybe your daughter than Otani, <laughs> yeah, right?
1: It's neck and neck. But
0: but other people <laughs> might not be as aware, and so perhaps they will turn on an Angel's broadcast. Why would they do that to see Otani? Really, that's the mm-hmm. only reason now to see him, and then they would say. Well, isn't that flame-worthy? So I can see, I can see the argument for both.
1: Yeah, I think hmm. it could get confusing if you had flames for Kyle Hendricks at 88 or something. <laughs> it's like it's flame-worthy for him, but maybe people might be a bit confused. Right. So. I guess I favor the one-size-fits-all flame. If if we need the flame at all, I mean, of course, we could just leave it to the viewer to decide what is flame-worthy in their own hearts. (laughs) If it strikes them as fast, they can come to their own conclusions. Like most people who are regularly watching baseball broadcasts, they know what a fast pitch is. And they probably even know for that particular pitcher. So you could argue that you don't need the flames at all. But I guess it could be kind of fun to have flames like, oh, flames, that was fast. But it actually has to be fast. And so I think it does have to be tied to the scarcity of pitches at that velocity. So, for instance, just looking at Baseball Savant now, if we look at pitches that are 95 miles per hour or faster, Irrespective of pitch type. So in 2008, the first year of pitch tracking, 7.6% of all pitches were 95 or faster. Mm-hmm. This year so far, it's 15.8. So almost double. And you know, people are throwing fewer fastballs as a percentage of all pitches today. So if you just limit it to fastballs, any type of fastball as classified by Baseball Savant, then the percentage has climbed from 12.2% in 2008 to 284 in 2022, so much more than doubled. And if you limit it to four-seam fastballs, then it's gone from 17.2% in 2008 to 33.8% in 2022, so just about doubled. And again, more than one in three four-seam fastballs now is 95 mile per hour or faster. So yeah. it's not rare. Like if someone's throwing a four-seamer, the odds are pretty decent that it's going to be 95 or faster, that you're going to get flames. So... I don't know where exactly to set it, but like if you decide that you wanted it to be roughly the percentage that it was in 2008, let's say, like if we had 17.2% of four seamers in 2008 were 95 or faster, well, these days, 20.3% of four seamers are 96 or faster. So basically, you should have raised it more than one mile per hour, the flame minimum now, if you're accounting for the overall scarcity in the league averages and such. So what this is, I think, is probably that we are just tied to base 10 and base 5 systems right And 95 oh it's nice it's divisible by five at 96 maybe even though that's where the flames started seemingly maybe that feels a little less fitting for a minimum for a threshold but really if it should have been 95 before then it should be at least 96 now so, we just need to get over our attachment to multiples of five, and I say that as someone who is pretty attached to multiples of five myself <laughs> when it comes to this podcast.
0: I mean, I would probably advocate for the following, which is that it should be a hundred and above
1: ooh, <laughs> okay.
0: you know it's it's not that that it isn't impressive to throw a ninety eight mile an hour pitch. But I think sure. when i because of the 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 sort of upward trajectory of fastball velocities, you know, when I think about what the flames should denote from my perspective, it should be something awesome, like in the traditional d- dictionary definition of awesome, yeah. like inspiring mm-hmm. of awe. Right. And certainly seeing 100 is less anomalous than it used to be. But I, I think that when you're going, wow, <laughs> it, it's, it starts at 100, I think still. I think it hmm. starts at 100. And so I think don't, don't, uh, don't think small, Ben. Let's think big. Yeah. Let's, let's have it be like, wow. And yeah. and then we could have, if we wanted to be really irritating and confusing, if we wanted to make it so that people go, what is this even supposed to mean? Like there could be the, there could be the fastball flames. Those start at a hundred. And then you could, for the, for the handful of guys who throw like a 90 mile our slider right we're like here's my my slider is 95 or whatever nonsense right. like basically maybe i'm just designing a system that only works for jacob de grom
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> it could be that i am just designing this around de grom that's not a representative picture you know he is he is special in a number of ways but i think that maybe i would advocate for flames only at 100 so that people go wow huh. like that interesting
1: wow. interesting yeah yeah i could see the argument that maybe the flames are really redundant at a hundred, because a hundred is just so breathtaking anyway, even though sure. it's more common than it used to be. It's like if you see triple digits, everyone knows that's something special, so maybe it's just overkill to have the flames on a hundred. But you're right, that is when it feels really special now, I think, just because yeah, even though maybe the leak average has only ticked up by one or two miles per hour since let's say they started doing flames at ninety-five, I think. I think the idea of high nineties velo has just become so normalized, right? And you just expect to see that from so many relievers, particularly that it's just not that special. Even if it's like ninety-eight or something, you're just kind of like, ho hum, you know? <laughs> it's just another guy coming in, firing ninety-eight mile per hour fastballs and nasty sliders. So I see what you mean that it's almost like you have to raise the threshold more right. than the league average movement alone would suggest.
0: Yeah, because I think that what you want that moment to to denote is like whoa, wow, ah. yeah. And so I I think that it doesn't need to even just indicate the the average, which I realize is being pulled up in some respects by the really high velos, right? It's like what's the average and the median are probably not the same. But so I, I think you want it to, I think you want it to like make your eyes pop, you know? Mm-hmm. I think you want it to be the sort of thing where you're in the ballpark and that number comes up and you're like, whoa, what did I just see? You know, I just saw something really cool. So I I think that we should interrogate the editorial purpose of the flames (laughs) a little (laughs) bit before we decide what the, the threshold needs to be. But I agree with you that it is currently set too low you know yeah, it's, it's
1: pedestrian 95 at this point right it's
0: <laughs> you know this is wages not keeping up with inflation like oh, right what, exactly. you, what else do you got for me you we need
1: a, a cost of living increase when yeah it comes to the flames exactly so, exactly <laughs> I just P- to Put that out there because I don't watch every single baseball broadcast and I wouldn't notice where they have the flame threshold set. So if your team, if the broadcast that you watch most often has a higher threshold or has raised its threshold from wherever it was previously, please let us know. I wonder whether that's happened. And speaking of StatCast inflation, just before we started recording, the Pirates' O'Neill Cruz set a new StatCast since 2015 record for exit speed as a hitter. He hit a ball 122.4 miles per hour topping Giancarlo Stanton's 122.2s, which he had done a couple of times. So Cruz hit one off the wall. It ended up being a single because it was hit so hard. It was hit so hard. I had to watch the video numerous times to figure out what had happened because I could not see the ball. I don't know whether it was because of the speed or because of the camera work, but I couldn't see the ball and I couldn't tell where the ball went because it seemed like the right fielder, who was Ronald Cunha, I believe, he seemed to field it. I thought at first, like he fielded it on a hop like it was in front of him, but right. actually I think it was off the wall. And it was it just, off the wall. <laughs> it ricocheted so yep. hard that he like backhanded it off the wall and held Cruz to a single. So pretty impressive. Although I got to say, like <laughs> it's, I guess Stanton now, like the the gauntlet has been thrown down and and he's coming off the IL this week. So we'll see if he can raise the roof again here. But it's almost fun in a weird way that Onel Cruz, despite being a stat cast superstar, Has not been a valuable Major League Baseball player thus far. (laughs) Like, he may yet be, but he's constantly, like, left and right doing these incredibly impressive things where he's throwing balls in the infield harder than anyone ever has, or he's, you know, racking up impressive sprint speeds, or he's now hitting a ball harder than anyone ever has. And yet, he's been a well below average batter and, like, a replacement level player, (laughs) essentially, which is like, Kind of interesting, kind of like... uh illuminating in a way I guess in the sense that you need more than raw physical skills and tools to be good at baseball so like even if you can run faster than almost anyone and throw the ball harder than everyone and hit the ball harder than everyone that's still not enough like if you don't make good swing decisions and you strike out too much and you don't walk that much and your defense is lacking in some other respects and maybe your base running decisions and stealing decisions are not optimized either like you might not be good, you know? Or he might still be good, like he might very well still learn those things and refine his game and and get good. And obviously when he's starting with this kind of foundation of just being able to hit and run and throw so hard, that's got to help. But it requires more than that, it seems like. So he's not been a good hitter. And he has, I guess it depends on which defensive stat you look at. And it's just a fairly small sample still with him. So some say he's been decent, some say he's been very bad but it takes more than just setting stat cast records on yep. individual plays to be a good baseball player
0: yeah it's just incredibly hard and perhaps nothing drives that home more than guys with you know actual 80 tools who still struggle yeah. to find their way at least for right now and you're right jury is still out it's not as if we are looking at Cruz's career and are like well he's just gonna be kind of sub replacement forever but no. it is not enough one is not saved by 80 grade tools alone right right So yeah and his
1: expected numbers are not really any better than yeah his it's not like numbers. there's a wild
0: discrepancy no. there you're like oh okay you're kind of right in that. <laughs>
1: he has a like a 260 or 275 babbitt despite his speed i mean yeah I'm, I'm sure like some of these things will improve but in oh, the yeah. same way that it's instructive that like yes having mike trout And Shohei Otani is not necessarily enough to build a good baseball team. It's sort of the same thing on an individual level where like having an 80 arm and 80 power is just not necessarily enough either because there are some things that are not even traditionally classified as tools, I guess, right? Like plate discipline that are pretty darn important and can prevent you from actually making the most of your raw physical skills. So, you know. I hope he does put it together and, yeah. and then he becomes actually a really good player because like, yeah. the ceiling obviously is sky high. But, right. It's yeah. as
0: it's even taller than he is and that's yeah. saying something, you know, because exactly. he's famously quite tall. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I went to a baseball game on Tuesday. Went what? to the Subway Series Yankees Mets game. Saw Man, the, the streaking you your, Yankees. <laughs> glad you got
0: your nose out of the spreadsheet there, Ben. Yeah,
1: I did. Although, really, <laughs> going as a fan for the first time in a while kind of reminded me why I don't do that more often, just because I guess it is specific to Yankee Stadium, which oh. I just, it's. A completely charmless place yeah. in my mind. Like, yeah. I don't want to offend any Yankees fans here, but I don't know if I will because it doesn't seem to me that Yankees fans are all that attached to the place either. Like, yeah. growing up as a Yankees fan with the previous version of Yankee Stadium, like, that place was one of my favorite places in the world. Like that was hallowed ground. I loved yes. it. It was run down in some ways. Yeah. And I understand why they wanted to replace it. I mean, I know that they wanted to replace it so they could have like more luxury boxes and yes. a moat in front of where the rich people sit and so forth. But yeah. like also it was not in the best condition. I get it. But it had charm. It had great sight lines and, and you were close to the field and it was just a great place. And obviously colored by being a kid and seeing great teams play there and having those great memories. But it was also just like a, a fun place to watch a game. And right. new Yankee Stadium, which is not actually new at this point, just is not. Like, it's not run down or decrepit like some parks are. It's just devoid of character and charm and also just like really not a user-friendly experience. Like, I know that it was obviously like a sellout and it was Yankees-Mets and everything, but Took me like you know, you get out of the subway, and I was uh, immediately flagged down by an effectively wild listener who oh, took a selfie, <laughs> which was flattering. But Aww. it was downhill from there because it was like you know, you, you, <laughs> you get out right in front of the stadium, and then it took me like half an hour like to get online to get in the park. Basically, yeah. it's like, it's so strange. It's like this labyrinthine like just. Tangle of like lines and You go this way and you go that way and There's just like milling about for like Entire blocks before you actually Officially get to the line like I've Never been to a venue that is harder To get into than Yankee Stadium And I don't know what it is like I've Been to sellouts and other ballparks And other big places seeing concerts And everything and I just I don't Think there is a worse experience Just to like get into the park and like Everyone on the line is like this is ridiculous Like what is happening here and like I just like could not get reception on my phone just because like there were so many people milling around right. so I'm like trying to pull up the tickets and like couldn't because my yeah. phone was just not working and then like I was there with a, a couple of friends because I'm, I'm in the wedding of an old friend that's coming up later this year and so a couple of us uh, the groomsmen were taking him to this game he's a Mets fan and the other one was a Yankees fan and like it was fun it was a good game once we got in we didn't yeah. get to Gram, unfortunately he had been scheduled to pitch but then right. he got pushed back. So we got Taiwan Walker instead, which is not quite as special, but it turned out to be a good game. But like we we didn't get into the park until the second inning and we got there early. So we just like could not get in and then My friends, they wanted to get some food. And I was like, no, thank you. Like, I've had enough time on lines. Right. They were getting food for like two innings. Like, it was like the worst. Yeah. And then, of course, like you get onto the D train afterward and, oh, man, it's like total sardine can situation and like train's not running. And if I don't get COVID from that, then I just must be immune. (laughs) But I don't know. (laughs) It's like... Just not the greatest, like you couple the price and just like the aesthetic of the place and everything. And, you know, unless you're going to a great game with with great friends and great company, in which case it's fun regardless. Right. Like it got to a point where, you know, I'm with a friend and we're just like aghast at how long it's taking to get into the park. And it went past like frustrating to just like almost absurdly fun in a way that it was like so mismanaged that it took us so long to get in. But, man, I mean, that place, I don't love it. It just seems like they did not do a good job with that park, both in terms of, like, getting into it and just the accessibility and then just, like, how fun it is to watch a game there. And you're just – you're further from the field. It's just – it. It's not a special ballpark. It's really not. Like, I much prefer City Field, frankly, and just about everywhere, (laughs) like, almost everywhere I've gone except for, like, old cookie-cutter, multi-purpose parks, maybe, some of which are no longer around anymore. I just, like, it's toward the bottom of my list, if not at the bottom of my ballpark list.
0: Yeah, I feel... Well, I always feel nervous (laughs) leveling these criticisms. Mm -hmm. But I will say perhaps this will inoculate me a little bit. Like having as a person who was able to go to a game at at old Yankee Stadium, you know, I'm sure that if it were my regular ballpark, the, you know, the the gaps between, you know, when an experience is like fun and old timey and like obviously run down yeah. would maybe widen and be more obvious. But yeah, it had character, right? It had personality. Yeah. And I think it—it it wasn't just that it had like you know grime, <laughs> it like had yeah. actual personality to it. <laughs> and even then, I remember being kind of underwhelmed by some of the like concession options. But like the ballpark was cool, so whatever. Like that's what you're there for,
1: right? Sure. And you know that was like what 2008 was the last year of that place. So right. you know they didn't have as much gourmet ballpark food back then anywhere. As, as right, they do that, now. right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Like this was. I I would imagine that for the time it was. Was pretty standard right like we mm-hmm. weren't doing we weren't doing anything other than bud light anywhere really mm-hmm. at that point so i think that it had it had a feel to it you could feel the history to the place and you're right like it i've said this before like the new yankee stadium feels like they built like a ballpark on the back lot at disney so that they yeah. could film like a show or a mm-hmm. movie about a baseball team and it, it feels like it is generic on purpose in a way that is like very strange for Mm -hmm. such a for such a storied franchise and for a franchise that has a very high level of self-regard right like Mm -hmm. you would think that they would want you to go into that place and be like a temple to baseball and specifically yankees baseball and it just doesn't have that feel to it and then yeah whenever whenever a a team that is and has been very good for a long time like can't do the ticket logistics stuff i'm just like what's your excuse for this because I remember there were times when I was you know when my local park was what is now T-Mobile what was Safeco and you know there would be a couple of weekends a year where either because of a ballpark promotion or because of the visiting team coming in like Safeco would be full and you could tell that they, they were kind of stretched right that they weren't used to dealing with sellout crowds because the Mariners were not good mm-hmm. and hadn't been good for a long time but it's like what is the Yankees excuse for that are they just is the assumption just that, well, you're going to put up with this because you really want to see the Yankees and the Mets. Like I know that not every day is a sellout there, and I know that not every day has as much sort of local buy-in as a Subway Series game where you're pulling both local teams' fandoms, but like, you got to have that stuff kind of figured out. Plus, it is the worst feeling. When you are in an extremely long line such that you cannot even see the front of it, really, you (laughs) are just... You are not only are you aware of your distance but you are or at least I am you're aware of the 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 grand act of faith that you are engaged in because yes. you are assuming that you are in the right line and that the exactly. people ahead of you didn't just like form a line right, right. that they weren't like eh, I guess this is where you know I was i was coming home from a couple of days of vacation yesterday and you know there was a moment where it became clear in the boarding group that someone had just like stood in a place and then everyone assumed that was the front of the line yep. it was not they were just <laughs> standing there they were, oh i'm sorry are you in line and it was like right. oh gosh
1: yeah we just had to take it on faith right like, that you were, in the, place we're in the you line need to be. We're, we're in the line for the line yeah <laughs> and i've been there many times so it's not just for subway series like it's never routine to get in there it's never like, you just sail right through. I don't know what it is. Like, yes, they have metal detectors and all of that, but it didn't even seem like that was such a holdup. It was just, like, crowd control. There wasn't any. It was just uncontrolled crowd. So I don't know how they don't have this down pat at this point, having been open for so long and having had many Subway Series games before. But really, like... That's part of the problem. And then once you get into the park, you're underwhelmed by the look of the place and the feel of the place as right. well. And, and I've worked there as a Yankees employee. I've worked there as a writer and I've gone there as a fan. So it's not a small sample for me. <laughs> like right. It's the closest MLB ballpark to me. I've been there many times and I'm just extremely unimpressed by the place. It's also astoundingly loud, and I know that nothing makes you sound older than complaining about the decibel level at a ballpark, but it's just deafening in there. Not being in the press box, I could fully appreciate the volume. My friend was joking that it's like if you're a baseball broadcaster, you have to be conscious of starting a story with two outs because you might get cut off. It's the same sort of thing if you're just with a friend at Yankee Stadium. The between innings noise just drowns everything else out. Not saying it needs to be like a church in there or that the old stadium was quiet in my youth, but having a conversation with your friends is one of the best parts of being at a ballpark. And if you can't do that because it's so loud, then maybe it's too loud. Every time they would flash like, make some noise on the scoreboard, it's like, no, please have mercy. My ears have been punished enough. I was at a concert at MetLife Stadium last week, and I'm not sure which was that or MetLife for Yankee Stadium. Not great that I would even ask that question. And along those lines, I've been thinking about this all season long because, you know, speaking of uh, potentially angering huge fan bases by insulting their ballparks, I was almost impressed by Red Sox reliever Josh Winkowski, who's a, a rookie. And earlier this year, the Red Sox went to Wrigley and played the Cubs and Winkowski offered his review of Wrigley compared to Fenway. Mm. Have you been to Wrigley and or Fenway?
0: I haven't been to either, no. Okay.
1: All right. I have been to each, but not often. I think I've only been to Wrigley once, and it was probably before a lot of the recent renovations, and I've been to Fenway maybe twice. But, you know, Winkowski just maybe with the the confidence of a 24-year-old, or I guess he was probably (laughs) 23 when he said this. Or perhaps the
0: innocence of a (laughs) 23-year-old, right?
1: Yeah, maybe so. And... He said Fenway Park kind of has a presence to it I really didn't get that here in Wrigley To be honest I said to my mom This place is very stock standard If you ask me I didn't really feel anything (laughs) to be honest It kind of just felt like another ballpark He said it was a little underwhelming And naturally he took some flack from Cubs fans I guess he had had just turned 24 at that point And he defended himself He stood by his words He said people want authenticity and honesty A whole bunch And then you give them A little bit And then people take it personally One thing I will say I was not attacking the fans With that comment Sure, fair enough Then he said As a rookie Obviously every time You get to a new ballpark You get into the dugout And kind of look around When I arrived There were no fans In the stadium So I didn't have that feel And my initial impression Was honestly what I said The lower level And then the top Was just very standard In my opinion It was a good atmosphere You could definitely feel it And obviously I don't underestimate The history there But architecturally I stand by my comment. This was a a bold thing to say. Yeah. I'm kind of with him to an extent. Now, I will say, like, again, small sample, but I think if I had to choose one to save, and this is like the genre of things where we we pick one and you always say, why do we have to choose? Yeah. Who
0: are these particular (laughs) terrorists who are like, you must?
1: Yeah. but, But if I had to save, either Wrigley or Fenway. I would hate to lose either, obviously, but I mean, I think he has a point, at least architecturally speaking, that Fenway is weirder, that it's, Unique in a way that Wrigley is not quite. Like, you know, if they're both known for green outfield walls, like you would have to say that the green of the green monster is weirder than the green of the ivy. I mean, they're both unusual in their own way, and the ivy perhaps is unsafe in a way. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's more eye-catching, I guess, to have this giant wall out there, like, and to have all the ins and outs of Fenway where, like, you know, you have the the weird right field where you can't tell what's a home run and what's not, and then you have the, the deep center and just, like, the irregular... Asymmetrical sort of fence and all like Fenway feels more like you built this ballpark inside the space that you had in a city, right? And you're just trying to cram a ballpark in there. And and they've both been renovated and and freshened up and everything. So it's not like they're their original selves anymore. But I see what he means. Like it's a it's a way to get some good cheap heat, I guess, from your fans to be like, oh yeah, Fenway's better than Wrigley, because people compare those parks because they're the two oldest. But I guess just my initial impression, having been to each once or twice, probably was sort of similar to Winkowski's in that, like, going to Fenway, it's like, oh, wow, this is unlike any other park I've ever been to. Like, this is so strange and so irregular and so unusual. And, you know, also really good sight lines, whereas in Wrigley, you might get stuck behind a pole or something. Yeah. I mean, maybe that used to happen at Fenway, too. I guess I, I'm saying, like, I sort of sympathize with his initial take here. And I guess you're spared from having a take, having not been to to either place, whereas I'm alienating some large portion of some fan base probably with these <laughs> comments. But <laughs> but I see what you mean, Josh Minkowski, and I, I defend your right to say it.
0: Man, it's just such a it can just be a very fraught thing to wade into because you so you know, people they develop an attachment to those places that is akin to like their own homes. And of course, yeah, you know, there's I'm sure stuff in everyone's house or apartment or what have you where they're like oh i wish i could do that differently but you kind of stop seeing those things like your brain gives you the grace of not noticing the thing that annoys you the most Mm -hmm. about where you live so that you can not be driven mad by your surroundings (laughs) and this you know it's the same thing with with your ballpark i've said it on this podcast before that like if the coliseum or my local park i would probably be a big defender of it even as i acknowledged its limitations or like the trap or mm-hmm. whatever you know sure i just it's fine if you like it it's fine <laughs> if it's your favorite place and mm-hmm. it's not other people's that's fine you know yeah. it's fine it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. okay we don't
1: need to to take it personally although i understand it's hard not to <laughs> yeah but- and and when you get to that advanced age of Wrigley or Fenway, then half the charm, I think, is just like knowing what happened here right. and how much baseball has been there, which, right. again, you don't even get with the new Yankee Stadium the way that you got right. with the, the semi-old Yankee Stadium because yeah. it's, it's not literally the same location quite. And so even though they've mirrored the design in some ways, you know, it's not quite the same place. Wrigley Fenway, yeah, they've changed, but it is essentially the same place. And so you do feel like you're walking into someplace special when you get there. Also, I guess I'm I'm more of a night game person than a day game person in general. I mean, both can be good, but because I prefer less sun (laughs) and cooler temperatures all else being equal, I prefer a nice night game, and I think I went to Wrigley during the day, as one does often. Yeah. And so I'm I'm less suited to that, perhaps. And and it's also like, like if you happen to be seated behind a support strut of some sort, like maybe right. you feel like you're getting the authentic Wrigley experience, <laughs> like this is how they used to build ballparks. They didn't have the same materials. They had to just have struts that were just like right in the middle of your sight line. Now you wouldn't want a season ticket right behind it, but if you're there for one game, it's like, okay, I'm getting the, the authentic Wrigley Field experience here. Not that there are support struts, not that every seat is obstructed view. It's not, but there's some weird angles.
0: Have they? taking care of that issue at, at Fenway because I thought Fenway was like famous for having a, a bunch of yeah, obstructed that's, that's had that seats. Yeah, that issue too.
1: I don't know whether those are completely gone because uh, again, it's it's been a little while since I was there as well. I'm just saying, like the initial experience when your eyes take it in for yeah. the first time and the green of the grass and the crack of the bat and all those cliches. Like I was more overwhelmed by Fenway than perhaps any ballpark I have been to it's it's such a singular place and and that was you know that's coming from someone who at the time I first went there I was a Yankees fan and I felt like I was yeah I I felt like I was in enemy territory or something it's like should I even go to this place like is it disloyal or something I was in Boston I don't think the Yankees were playing it was just like should I go see Fenway and so if anything I would have been biased against the place right and yet I was extremely impressed by it
0: Well, I hope that you don't get a bunch of angry (laughs) emails, you know? I think it'll... I think it'll be fine, but Yeah.
1: The Yankees fans were with me when I was dumping on Yankee Stadium until I started praising Fenway, then I probably lost a bunch of them. Right. They were like, (laughs) what
0: the heck is going on?
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. So some news that has happened since we last recorded. Several things I suppose we should touch on. First, it sounds like there may be some deliverance in sight for the Angels. Yeah. That there may be a regime change coming that Artie Moreno, owner of the Angels, has announced. that he is exploring a sale We don't know what the timeline Is here but it's not even just a Rumored thing he came out with a statement They are looking to sell that franchise and Yeah That has potential implications, I suppose, for where Otani will play or it could, I guess, or whether they decide to trade him or try in earnest to extend him, which seems like it would be a pretty tough sell at this point. But now it's almost like a one Soto situation where there are ownership considerations here. And so I don't know whether he wants to get Otani off the books. It's not like he's making much money at this point anyway. So probably you don't have that same concern. But do you want to try to keep Otani locked up long term? Does that make the sale more attractive or does the ownership uncertainty make you more likely to trade him? I don't know. Beyond that, though, I think if you had to pin the blame for the Angels not winning with Trout or with Otani over this period, there's a lot of blame to go around and maybe some lousy luck as well. Sure. Eddie Marino does not have a great reputation as an owner. No. They've never been one of the lowest spending teams, but they've also never gone above like 180 million or so. Like he he sort of established what his ceiling was long ago for yeah. that payroll and hasn't really budged beyond it. And he is known as a meddler, someone who will scuttle trades or or oh, yeah. demand that certain moves be made. And perhaps is not the best at deciding which moves should or should not be made. So that's an issue that maybe prevents you from getting the best front office talent in some cases, or it just hamstrings the the front office people that you do have. And. Then there are other issues with him, and like minor leaguers and mm-hmm. treatment of employees, and, and mm-hmm. all that that makes you think not the best. And you know, the Angels were one of the like handful of teams, or not even handful, that voted against like raising the the minimum competitive yeah. balance tax threshold during the most recent round of CBA negotiations, too. So. Just a a lot of reasons why if you're an Angels fan, you would probably not be sorry to see this team potentially changing hands and you don't know whose hands it will be changing into and whether they will be better. But any change, it seems like, for the Angels would probably be a welcome one at this point.
0: Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting. I think that I feel for Angels fans because you're going to have – I imagine that they will have this experience, right, where it's like there's the initial rush of relief that you might be moving on from – a meddlesome owner, an owner who doesn't have a reputation for treating people particularly well in a way that seems to hamstring their ability to hire, Who is meddling seems to impact the roster in an actively negative way, who is sort of persnickety when it comes to the spending he does. He's willing to spend, but like you said, it's like in particular areas. So you have that initial rush. You're like, ah, we will finally be free of Moreno. And then you have the like reality sink in of just how, behind they are in some ways, right? Where we know that it takes a while to build the infrastructure to have a winning baseball team, right? And it's like, it's some of it is personnel and being able to attract personnel. I wonder what a new ownership group will say to the existing front office. Like, I, I assume this means that Perry Manassian is just like on the hot seat by virtue of the fact that a new ownership group might want to bring in their own folks and have a hand in hiring a new GM and a new coaching staff. So you have like that piece of it to contend with. You have, can we alter the reputation that this franchise has among baseball people to attract additional talent? And I don't say that as if there aren't good people who work in their front office now, but we know that the way that they have handled their hiring and the way that they treated their staff during the pandemic, like, turned a lot of people off of trying to work for them, right? Because they're like, Mm -hmm. this guy doesn't have our back. Like, why would I want to work for Artie Moreno? He seems terrible. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: there's that part. And then there's just, like, the literal physical infrastructure, right? It's like, you know, they have not had a good time (laughs) developing players seemingly. You know, you look at... Some of the hitters that have gone through there and they've like changed their swings, and those changes haven't been particularly fruitful, and they have not been able to always develop pitching well. There are some guys that have sort of bucked that trend. So it's like, what is the existing state of like the systems infrastructure that the Angels have? And it might not be like super far off of industry standard. I'm not saying that with like special inside knowledge, but you think about the changes that had to take place in Miami. After their sale and it took a couple of years for them to like get the literal systems infrastructure in place and the people in place to then be able to go out and actually execute a rebuild and it took a little while and so this is like the first step in a journey that might take still a couple of years but Then again, they were probably in for a couple of years of not being very good anyhow. So maybe it doesn't actually alter the perception of their fans at all. And -hmm. you're more likely to do it with uh, hopefully, maybe you're more likely to do it with a new ownership group who comes in and is like, yeah, let's go. Mm -hmm. But we also know that sometimes the ownership groups come in and they're like, yeah, we're bored of being hedge fund managers. And not in the like Steve Cohen way, but in the like bean counting kind of way. Mm -hmm. Why is it bean counting? What is the (laughs) etymology of that? Are you literally counting beans? Did they just pick a small thing and a tiny... Are they like pinto beans, like tiny beans? Anyway, so I think (laughs) that it will be for the good of baseball. It is potentially for the good of baseball to have Moreno out as an owner. It's probably at the very worst a lateral move because you're not guaranteed that the new owners are going to be like, awesome, but could they be worse? (laughs)
1: relative to expectations is a monkey's
0: paw curling somewhere as i say that like (laughs) did i just curse an entire franchise who could say Mm -hmm. but yeah i I will say this to the to the new potential owners of the los angeles angels if it takes moving mike trout's contract Mm right to trade otani and you want to make that move to the mariners i don't know i think they'll eat it you should just think about it you know <laughs> think about what feels right in your heart yeah all of the tweets from me as like a big mariners fan are gone because i just like deleted all of that stuff so it's <laughs> uh-huh. nice to give people a little taste of what they might yeah. you know it's been a while where it's yeah, like it's, oh i feel the it's stir been fun to, you know? to see the
1: fandom come back a bit yeah a little
0: bit i, I mean mm-hmm. i'm trying not to be i'm not trying to be crazy i'm just mm-hmm. trying to trade mike trout and Shohei otani to the mariners as one does as a sure. most, mostly neutral observer ben that's all it mm-hmm. is anyway i interrupted you
1: i don't know if it was <laughs> the lack of success of the team that has prompted his decision to sell or the setback when it comes to becoming like a real estate company right because it a few right. months ago There was a whole scandal where there was a deal between Moreno's management group and they were going to purchase Angel Stadium and the big property around the park and then develop it into, you know, multi-purpose residential commercial space like Mm -hmm. all the other ballpark villages that teams are doing. And then the city council ruled against this deal. There was a tentative agreement because, like, there was corruption and a a federal investigation (laughs) about violations of state laws and ethics. And insider information and the former mayor of Anaheim, he resigned. <laughs> and yeah. it's like they overturned the Angel Stadium deal. So I don't know if that is what finally prompted this more so than the Angels having yet another losing season. But either way, Perhaps good riddance whenever he is gone. So we'll see how long that process takes. It seems like there's a lot of confusion about the etymology of bean counting.
0: Bean counting?
1: Yeah, goes back quite a ways, but no one knows exactly why. Or there are several competing theories. I will uh, link to some information.
0: I hope it's not a, you know, sometimes you're like, what's the etymology of this thing? And then you're like, well, right. it's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, But it's good to know that because then you can be like, I will elect to not use the horrible thing anymore. Sometimes you just don't know, yeah. right? You're like, oh yeah. no, this relates to a time that we wish we were done with. <laughs> as far as
1: I can tell, it's not that. But okay,
0: well that's that's good. They're <laughs> like the, all the little beans are sitting there. Like, don't try to milkshake duck us, Meg. We're just mm-hmm. tiny we're just tiny little beans that everyone wants to count. Just counting mm-hmm. beans. Yeah. Maybe it's like a it's like a reference to like abacus abacai abacuses yeah, this, this
1: thing i'm reading says that you would think that it's that but it doesn't actually it's seem not to be that, that. Wow. yeah no. all right so, well
0: in addition to the flames thing if we have any <laughs> listeners who have a, a solid beat on the etymology of bean counting i would mm-hmm. appreciate that email because now i'm very curious
1: yeah it's an evocative term i mean maybe it sort of explains what it means it's yeah. like you know if you're counting the individual beans it's right. like you know you're drilling you're down, down to, too far you you're know.
0: down to ben you're down to brass tacks
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a brass tack counter but yeah, yeah i don't know It. i guess it's uh almost self-explanatory perhaps or maybe there's some more convoluted origin that we don't know
0: yeah do you think they stay in anaheim there
1: Hmm. Mm. uh hmm Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess so. Probably right. right? Yeah, there hasn't been a, a I'm huge not buzz about for anything, them to be clear. moving specifically, and yeah, I think eh, probably, probably, right? probably at yeah. least in yeah. the short term. All yeah, right. well, mm-hmm. you
0: know, we just have to we just have to terrify an entire fan base with our questions. <laughs> is what it comes
1: down to. <laughs> yeah. Tony Larusa has LaRussa'd a couple times since we last spoke, so there was another intentional walk in a one-two count with uh, Oscar Gonzalez batting behind 1-2. There was a double steal. First base was opened up. And so Larusa issued the intentional walk to Oscar Gonzalez with a one two count. There was again another backlash. And Larusa said that the backlash about the one two intentional walks that he's issued have been, quote, the most ridiculous thing in this season. <laughs>
0: Excuse me, sir. <laughs> Look, he doesn't even have to lay claim to the most ridiculous thing in this season. The most ridiculous thing in this season was still Joe Madden ordering an intentional walk with the bases loaded. All you have to do is point at that <laughs> to know true. it is not the most ridiculous thing. So, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. <sighs> I mean, I think it's uh, pretty objectively more ridiculous to issue these walks than to get up in arms about them. On them, but it just it seems like he just prioritizes the matchup so much more than the count. Like he almost disregards <sighs> the count if it's a matchup that he doesn't like. Which doesn't make much sense to me because the count really heavily influences the expected outcome of that matchup. So, sure, even if you don't love this particular pitcher against that particular hitter, when that particular hitter is down 1 2, then almost inevitably it's going to be better than starting with a fresh count on the next guy. And it seems like he just does not take that into account or does not weigh it heavily enough. So, it's weird, but he's done it enough times now that it's not a fluke, it's not just a mix fixing things up or trying to shake things up the way Joe Madden was. It's like, no, he thinks this actually like makes sense analytically speaking. Well, gotta disagree on that, Tony, I think. But maybe the more serious issue was what happened with Michael Kopek in his most recent start. So Kopech he hurt his knee during warmups, and, like, it was pretty apparent that he had, and, and I think there was, like, a mound visit, and he decided to stay in, but was, like, seemingly hobbled by this injury, and they let him stay in anyway and start the Bad. game, and he was charged with four earned runs right like he he didn't get an out he was clearly not effective and was hampered by this injury and his velocity was down and everything and then he went on the IL and as of now it doesn't seem to be super serious but that's a dangerous thing when you let someone pitch hurt and it's pretty apparent that yeah. he's hurt Not only do you hurt yourself in that game because the White Sox mounted a comeback and they ended up losing six to four because they were down (laughs) four runs, like in the first inning, because he was ineffective, but. Also, like, you jeopardize the pitcher. I mean, you run the risk of exacerbating that injury or maybe he he compensates for the knee thing and and hurts his arm or something. And, like, Kopech, he's already had a knee issue this year, although I think it was the other knee maybe. But, Mm -hmm. like, he's missed time. He's well over his innings maximum career now. So, like... You feel like you want to, you know, treat him carefully anyway, and he's like one of your few reliable starters all season, and it just uh, seems a little cavalier that seems like maybe not the best way to handle a pitcher i mean i know that the white sox they need every game they need every win at this point they're still just one game over 500 and they're four games back of the guardians in the central as we speak so maybe it's a little bit of desperation kicking in but that that seems uh not your your best practices when it comes to managing (laughs)
0: No, especially because I might argue that like one of the most important things that a manager can do is like protect future you from present you.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: look, there are definitely times where an injury will befall a baseball player and they know right away like I need to be done or they they simply can't continue. But we know that baseball players are hyper-competitive. They always want to take the ball. They uh, very often will not prioritize sort of their long-term health in the way that they maybe should. I I would argue that like guys who have been injured previously, who you might think would be the most sensitive to that are sometimes the most cavalier because they're like, no, I must, you know, I got to do the thing. True, like, yeah. I'm, you know, and so I think that we often give managers a hard time. Sometimes managers make decisions that don't make a lot of sense to us, that if we had the information they had at their disposal would make more sense. I don't think that what he's doing with intentional walks falls into that category of things to be clear. But like sometimes as we've talked about, like a reliever won't get used and the manager knows stuff that we don't, they just operate with a lot more information at their disposal and they're actually making a decision that makes a good amount of sense. And, like, being able to say to a guy, no, you need to be done. Like, we mm-hmm. need you. We're going to need you next time. We're going to need you a month from now. We're going to need you in the playoffs if we get there. And so, you know, I got to I gotta sit you now. Like, that seems like one of the most important things that a manager can do. Mm-hmm. Got to protect future you from present you. Sometimes present you... Not famous for making good choices, (laughs) and then it undermines future you, and future you looks back on past you and is like, what the heck, man? Why didn't Mm -hmm. you make a better choice? And it's like, well, I really wanted to pitch that day. So there you go.
1: Yeah. And man, they have really needed Johnny Cueto, who is just named- AL Player of the Week, which is great because like everyone loves Johnny Cueto. Yeah, he's immensely entertaining, and he was signed by the White Sox to a, a minor league deal like yep. just before Opening Day. Right like, before you Opening know, Day, just about anyone could have had Johnny Cueto, and he yeah. has a 2.58 ERA in 118 and two thirds innings. Like, yeah. granted, you know he's not striking guys out. Like the peripherals are are not nearly as good, but sure. they're not bad. Yeah. And they're certainly not bad for someone you could get on a minor league deal that oh, converted yeah. into a major league deal where he's making like $4 million or something yeah. like, you know, and it's uh, it's kind of odd that he was available on that. I don't know whether we talked about that at the time or not. Yeah, but I don't like, remember
0: if we even really mentioned it all that much.
1: Yeah, I remember a, a point where it was like, you know, who's the best available pitcher left who's a free agent now, Johnny Cueto or something like, I mean, he was not bad last year either, you know, like he. He pitched, like, about the same number of innings that he has pitched so far this season and had, like, a four-ish ERA and was worth, you know, like, a win and a half in fangraphs war, at least. Like, he was pretty decent when he was pitching. So it's almost odd that there wasn't more interest in his services, but he has rewarded the White Sox richly. You know, if you go by, like— FIP or whatever like it's it's basically the same as he was last year but he was pretty decent last year as like a mid to back rotation right. guy and they've certainly needed that with all the injuries and, and ineffectiveness that they've dealt with this year so player of the week Johnny Cueto i <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> love to see it and another player of the week even older than Johnny Cueto is Albert Pujols who we talked about last time yeah about how well he had been doing. And he's Heck been doing even run. better since then. Yeah. So he's up to a one hundred forty-six WRC plus now. Like
0: Heck yeah, he what? is.
1: Jeremy Frank tweeted that he's had a like a thirteen hundred slugging percentage over a recent ten game span, which was his highest slugging percentage over any ten game span in his career. So late career renaissance. And and I mentioned last time that Although he had been platooned lately like he he hadn't really been platooned in the full season like they were using him against right-handed pitchers earlier in the year and it didn't go so well. Now they have really committed to the bit and he is basically at least only starting and and mostly only batting against lefties. And now that he's in this platoon role, he is really raking and (laughs) – I noted this last time, but, you know, one of the things that made me pessimistic about someone picking him up after the Angels let him go is that he hadn't really hit lefties that well as an Angel either. But maybe whether it's that he can see the finish line or he's back in St. Louis or just knowing that he's a part-time player, like beginning with the Dodgers last year and just like committing to being a lefty masher, like really seems to be working for him. So, I mean, I guess 700 homers is still a long shot at 693 although he just hit seven in a very short spin but like you know, passing A-Rod for whatever that's worth, if you care about that. That's looking more likely now. I mean, like, he's he's like a legitimate threat now. I mean, yeah. you know, in the playoffs, like, you might be afraid to see Albert Pujols yeah. come up with a lefty in the mound. Yep. That's pretty great. And, yeah. You know, it doesn't seem to have changed his mind about sticking around longer, which is fine. Like, maybe it's best that he go out on a high like this, yeah. depending on how the Cardinals season ends. But, boy, he's been fantastic.
0: Yeah, he's been... So here's a question for you, Ben. Okay. So he is currently what? He's how many away from tying a Rod?
1: Uh, like four, I, I think.
0: think something like that. And he's seven away from 700, right? Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, a Rod had 696, Pujols okay. is three away from that.
0: So he's three away from that. He's seven away from from the nice round number of 700. Mm-hmm. So you're you're out You've yeah. you've gotten comfortable with this role where you are really just being platooned, but you are doing that to great effect. You have these important milestones sort of insight. And let's say you don't you don't you you don't get there, right? Today is we're recording on August twenty fourth. You go on a very cold, cold streak, you don't hit another home run. You've said you're retiring at the end of the year. Does part of you go Stuck around a little bit longer to get a couple more and be able to right. get these milestones. Like, what do what do you think the odds are that he sort of sticks to the idea of being done, or does he? Is he tempted?
1: I guess trying to put myself in his headspace, I I guess I wouldn't be that swayed by something like 700 or or passing A-Rod. Like he's already at the top or close to the top of so many leaderboards and he can't get to the actual top of some of the most significant ones. Like. You know, just the other day, he passed Stan Musial, another Cardinals legend, to take over second place in total bases all time, which is pretty cool. But he's like 700 behind (laughs) Henry Aaron still. So, like, you can't catch him. No. And maybe it's sort of similar with the home runs where it's like, okay, passing A-Rod would be nice. Getting to 700 would be nice, I guess. But, you know, you're still behind Bonds, Aaron, Ruth. Like, does it move the needle that much to be fourth instead of fifth or to have 700 instead of, you know, 698 or something. If you've, been around as long as Albert Pujols and accomplished as much as Albert Pujols, I feel like that would not motivate me that much. Now, if I were just having a ton of fun because yeah. I were rejuvenated and hitting well again and I'm in St. Louis and everyone loves me, like yeah. then I might be tempted just to to stay around to extend that run. But I guess when you have like as many huge numbers as he has and you can't really move up to the very tippy top of the most significant ones, it probably would not sway me, I think.
0: Right. So you, despite your love of having like, you know, nice round numbers, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. be like, I'm going to go through another. Basically, I'm not going to go through another spring training so that I can attempt to, (laughs) to bank a couple more.
1: Yeah, probably not. Fair Plus, uh, if he cares about the the 100 war <laughs> threshold, right. he's, he's at 100.7 now, so oh, quit boy. while you're ahead. <laughs> even,
0: even with his pitching war taken into account? Oh,
1: I guess 100.6 in that case, oh. sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your margin
0: for error is very slight, Albert.
1: Yeah, the Cardinals have been on quite a run lately, partly Pujols-fueled, but... Also, I, I guess they, they had their winning streak snapped by the Cubs on Tuesday, they but did. before that they had like seven in a row and I don't know, sixteen out of nineteen or something, roughly like that. Like not quite the last season's late right. season run, but like not so far from that. They've yeah. opened up a bit of a, a lead in the central. And, you know, Jordan Montgomery has been like historically good for yeah, a, a trade fantastic. deadline acquisition, <laughs> throwing a Maddox the other day. Like that just seems like a perfect fit for for pitcher and team yeah. with the sinkers and the infield defense yeah. and everything, although certainly made the Yankees look not so great for a trade that a lot of people were flummoxed by and, and questioned when it was made. And now to see him go on on that run and Bader not be back quite yet it hasn't made the Yankees look the best for a move that many people were wondering about when it happened, but yeah. Between that run he's been on and really just like everyone's raking and it. it's not just Arnado and, and Goldschmidt and Pujols. It's also like the guys at the top of that lineup and like the Lars Newt bars and the Brendan Donovans and those guys are getting on base in front of the the big mashers. So... The offense has really kind of been carrying that team in addition to what Montgomery has done. So I know there's been a, a big hue and cry over Yadier Molina taking a couple games off to go watch his basketball team play in a championship in, in Puerto Rico. And I, it's such a, a weird like only in high level professional sports style yeah. story. Like I I get it, you know, I like – by the standards of like what constitutes acceptable reasons for taking time off in major league baseball. This probably doesn't clear them, I guess, just because like baseball players, they don't just like, yeah, I'm gonna gonna take a couple of games off. I'm just gonna like go home for a while. Like in any other arena or realm, it would be totally normal and encouraged just to like take a a day off, go home, you know, recharge a little bit. You just took a couple days off. It's totally normal. Totally (laughs) normal. Advice But in Major League Baseball... Which I guess I get because like, A, you're making tons of money. So there's that. And also there's, you know, you get a built in like four or five months off per year anyway, right? Because of the off season. So the need to to take time off is a little less acute, assuming it's not, you know, for paternity or bereavement or something. It's just, you know, to go see your professional basketball team play. And I guess, you know, if you're a team leader, not that there's any shortage of like seasoned veterans on that team. But if you're a team leader and if you're maybe in your last season and people are, like, coming to pay their farewells or whatever and they don't get to see Yadier Molina, like, you know, I don't think it affects the Cardinals that much because, like, he's not that good anymore, really, (laughs) at at least, like, going by the tangibles – At least he is. that you're just,
0: like, throwing shots at fan bases (laughs) that are notorious for never reacting to things.
1: I know. (laughs) At least it's, like, equal opportunity here. I'm, like, uh, attacking a a Cardinals legend and a a Cubs (laughs) legendary institution. So everyone can be mad at me and they can come together. But, you know, like, he has a 44 WRC plus this year. And uh, even if his defense, which is somewhat diminished, I think, but even if it's still adding some value there, like – Losing Molina for a couple games probably not going to affect your playoff odds too much at this point, but it's just such a weird line of work where you can be drafted, you can be traded whenever, and if you try to take a little time off, I mean – People, like, there's abuse and blowback when players take time off to, like, go see the birth of their kid or whatever, yeah. but, like, probably a little less of that than there used to be. But if you're just like, yeah, I'm going to go see my other team play for a couple games, then people will be upset about that in some cases. And I guess I understand why, you know, does it send some sort of message that you are not prioritizing winning or whatever? Maybe. But also, like, if you're Yadier Molina, like... Man, that guy has never wanted to take a day off <laughs> and he's played yeah. in so many postseason games and just like the wear and tear on that body over the years, like he's given you a pretty good service, I think. And he's pushing 40. No, he is 40 at this point. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's understandable, but it's like a only in – professional sports at the elite level would this become a controversy I understand why it did but in no other realm would it be considered odd to take a couple days off it's just such a strange business
0: it is a it is a really supremely weird job like we've said before (laughs) it's just the weirdest workplace you ever seen
1: Mm hmm. So last things I guess we should note, Fernando Tatis Jr. had shoulder surgery on top of everything else, which I guess you might think, oh, man, like when it rains, it pours. I mean, he had the wrist thing and the motorcycles and the suspension and now shoulder surgery on top of everything in a way like it it almost makes me more optimistic about Fernando Tatís when yeah. he returns cuz I was worried about the shoulder you know right. cuz like his shoulder just kept popping out of its socket and it's like a condition that he had and has and there was a lot of risk that that could happen again And it seemed like it could become a chronic issue and he elected not to have surgery heading into this year. And so now that he has this enforced time off, he has decided to just get it over with. But I actually feel a little bit better about him assuming the surgery is a success just because like it's never good news if you have to have shoulder surgery, but if you have this condition. Right. It's good to
0: take care of stuff. Right.
1: Yeah. So assuming this solves that problem, which I guess is not a given, but it would be a good thing if you didn't have to worry about his shoulder just popping out all the time, especially if you're like going to put him back at shortstop and he could be Diving. I don't know how much safer playing outfield was because you dive in the outfield too. But if that is taken care of, that would be good because like the worst case scenario would be that he comes back from the suspension after a month or so next season and then like the shoulders an issue again. Right. And then you're talking about yet another injury plagued season. So hopefully this will do away with that scenario.
0: And he also i know he he spoke with reporters and apologized in a pretty unequivocal and i i think good way for mm-hmm. the circumstances that led up to his suspension, so hopefully like you know you get your you get your shoulder cleaned out and taken care of you're you know perhaps having a moment of reflection that makes you want to you know, change your behavior going forward. And like we said, when we talked about the initial suspension, like hopefully a year from now, we're looking back being like, you know, he sure did. He grew up, he moved on from that and started making good choices. But I'm with you. I think that when you have the opportunity to get fully healthy, you should view it as such, even if the circumstances surrounding his his chance to do that are obviously not great. And hopefully that means that when he gets back and, and is available next season after his suspension concludes that he like really hits the ground running, is able to... Put all of this stuff behind him and the Padres are able to finally like deploy the, you know, terrifying Voltron <laughs> lineup that they right. hope to be able to, to use later this season. So,
1: mm-hmm. And I also wanted to note that I believe we fixed Alex Bregman. We did our our magic that we sometimes do, which is... That's so nice of us. Yeah, our power, it seems to be the opposite of the Sports Illustrated cover jinx, and maybe it's the same mechanism. It's like regression to the mean just in the opposite direction, but we've had a bit of a track record of sometimes pointing out that players such as, say, Bryce Harper, notably early last season, were not performing up to their usual standards, that we hadn't been talking about them all that much, and we did that with Alex Bregman as well, because we talked about him. It was June 10th, I believe, episode 1861 we mentioned that Bregman, after having a a couple of down seasons, had Mm -hmm. started off sort of in a down way again. And and I wondered whether it was even down or whether this was just who Alex Bregman was now. And I think we noted that he had been playing through all sorts of injuries, hamstring and quad and hand injuries. But after being an MVP level player, he had declined to just being like a, a decent player like you know okay good player but not much above average batting wise so since then so that was june 10th since june 11th he has hit 305 395 562 that is a 173 wrc plus And he is the, I think, sixth best qualified hitter over that span after Judge Goldschmidt Freeman Arnado Soto. It is then Alex Bregman, who's been worth more than three war over that span and, again, sixth best hitter in baseball. So I think we fixed him. I know that Ben Clemens just blogged about him for Fangraphs. Concluded that he hasn't really changed anything obvious, that he's just sort of doing what was working for him before, but doing it better, maybe because he is fully healthy now. And so his approach of just being selective and only swinging at things that he can hit hard and then just pulling a lot of balls in the air and taking advantage of the Crawford boxes and making the most of his modest power, like he's still following the same game plan. And maybe it's just working better because he's healthy or maybe because... We finally brought him up on the podcast and said, right. hey, Alex Bregman, what's going on? You're not a superstar anymore. Yeah. And then he decided he's going to turn on the afterburners and be great again. And I know that David Lorelai interviewed him around that time, too. I guess mid-May he talked to him. And Bregman noted then, May 18th, that he had made some mechanical changes, that there was something off with his hand load and the wrist position of his top hand and that they had just changed it and that he was hoping that that would help. But between that day and when we talked about him a few weeks, like he hit worse, actually. So I don't know that it was changing the hand that fixed him or whether it was just us dragging him a bit on the podcast that finally just like, you know, lit a fire under him. But whatever it was, he's uh, back to being capital A, capital B Alex Bregman again, it seems like.
0: What else should we use our powers for?
1: I know. we. Tried to use them for like Nelson Cruz and and Joey Votto. Yeah. And and then it it worked for a while because they were hitting incredibly well. And we did a follow up and then, you know, Votto hurt himself and maybe Cruz cooled off again. So it's only so much we can do, I guess, once you get to a a certain age or injury level. But, yeah, who else can we resuscitate and and revive? We got to look around the league and see who's slumping that we would like to be good again.
0: I don't know. I got to think about that. I mean, maybe we will have some sort of positive effect on all of the non stat cast breaking things mm, mm-hmm. that O'Neill Cruz does. You yeah. Know, maybe right. that'll happen. I guess we just kind of got distracted from Vado and Cruz. So, yeah, right. Oh, and these episodes, Ben, they're already so long. You know, we can't mention <laughs> every guy every time. Mm-hmm. People will riot and stop listening. But, yeah. I'm gonna think about that. Who do I most want to help? Like turn turn yeah. it around. Who is struggling? can email strangling? us. If, yeah, you yeah. want to. Like,
1: we can, you know, put a request in, make an offering <laughs> for for us to revive their careers by yeah. like, negging them somehow and pointing out that they haven't actually been doing as well as they used to do. So
0: have we yeah. had a, have we had the reverse effect on anyone? Because I want to, you know, you <sighs> hmm. gotta understand the bounds of your. Right. Superhero powers because you you only want to deploy them for good. I don't want to deploy them for evil. You know. Yeah,
1: I'm sure when we talk about someone who's hitting well, we always uh, caveat it, and so we inoculate ourselves against that player then slumping by noting right. that oh, the fact that we're talking about them when they're on this heater probably means they might cool off at some point. But I don't know. Like you know, we talked about Albert Pujols last week. He's only heated up since then. We talked about Aaron Judge and his home run pace. He's still on pace for 62. He hit his 48th with me in attendance on Tuesday. That's right. So, gotcha. you know, I don't know that we've had any complete collapses lately after we talked about someone who was hitting well.
0: well that's good because I don't want to, you know, we're not here to undermine anyone. We don't want anybody to start having a bad day and walk around being like, gosh, what's going on with me? And someone will be like, oh, they were nice about you on Effectively Wild. And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, that does
1: <laughs> Right. We yeah. I want
0: that. No.
1: No, Don't want that reputation. Okay. And I did want to say, speaking of players who are on pace for historic home run accomplishments, we talked about Judge a ton. I just wanted to mention Munitaka Murakami who is doing incredible things in NPB. Like yeah. the season he is having is unbelievable. And for those who don't know, like he's been a good player for a while. He was the the Central League MVP last year, but he has taken things up to just a new level now. And he is just completely raking and it's been fun to follow. So he has 45 homers now and he's on pace for 58 at this point because, you know, they play 143 game seasons over there. He was on pace for 60 for a while. So, he is probably not going to catch Vladimir Blentian who has the single season record of 60 over there, but he is on pace to set the single season record for a Japanese player in MPP and he is already the youngest to hit 40 in a season. Right, he's only like 22, right? Yeah, he's he's 22. He's hitting now 327 457 728. For the Swallows this year 45 dingers that's in 110 games And 470 plate appearances And you would not know it from looking at his line But offense is down significantly In NPB relative to Last year and even to a few years before that Like you know OPS is down like 20 points league wide since last year And like 50 points since a few years Ago there's been a bit of a power Outage there and yet he is doing This in this environment And I was just looking on Delta Graphs, a website, a statistical service, which is sort of like a fangraphs style site yeah. and statistical resource for NPB. He has 8.2 war according to Delta Graphs, which is leading all position players by like two and a half war and leading all players because Yamamoto, the best pitcher, the ace, he's at six war. So Munitaka Murakami is just head and shoulders above anyone else. He has a 233. WRC plus, which yeah. is, I mean, yes, the quality of play in the league is a little lower than it is in the majors, but still like 233, that's just like lapping the league. I mean, that is Bonzi and that is like peak bonzian basically we have not seen anyone do that and just like looking delta graph's data goes back to 2014 the only other player qualified hitter during that span to get to 200 was yuki anagita no one has been up in the the rarefied air where murakami finds himself this season so just pretty incredible he's doing this at such a young age and we talked earlier in the year about Roki Sasaki, the pitcher who's even younger, who's 20 yes. and is doing incredible things. And and he is as well, even though he's pitched just over 100 innings, he's still like the second highest war of, of any pitcher for the Marines. And, you know, he's he has like the, the best FIP or adjusted FIP on record at Delta Graphs, like minimum 90 innings. Like he's been unbelievable as well. So... To have a 20 year old and a 22 year old who are doing historic things, that's got to be really fun yeah. for fans to follow over there. Sasaki now has uh, a 1.57 FIP <laughs> with uh, like almost five war Yay. in just a little more than 100 innings pitch. Like, and they've been taking it easy and, and being careful with him, which is good. But like he's just like untouchable basically, even when he's not pitching perfect games. So yeah, those guys are are just like a ton of fun. And Murakami, he just set a record by hitting home runs in 5 consecutive at-bats that had never been done before in Japan. So he did that. Sasaki has a 37% strikeout rate, which uh no one with at least 90 innings pitched there is over 28%, so <laughs> again, he's just like lapping everyone. So it's just a, it's just a lot of fun and like no one had hit 40 that young since Sadaharu Oh and Koji Akiyama, who were Hall of Famers, and they did it at 23. And so he's done it at 22. And it's just sort of like sky's the limit. And both of these guys, it will probably be a while before right. we see them in MLB if we do. But it doesn't mean we should not enjoy <laughs> what they're doing yeah. while they're doing it. So go check out their stats at the very least or look up some highlights if you can, because pretty historic and special accomplishments for both of those guys. Yeah, agreed. And I guess lastly, maybe we should note that they announced the regular season schedule for next year for 2023, which usually is a yawn for me. But this year is pretty notable because we have a, a new balanced or more balanced schedule. So all 30 teams will be playing each other. And the season is scheduled to start on March 30th. Yeah. So it'll be nice to start and end a little earlier than we did this year because of the negotiations and the delay and everything. So I think the last game of the season is October 1st, the regular yes. season that is. So yes, March right. 30th to October 1st that's nice and you know less of a chance of the expanded playoffs going into november which they will this year so the highlights here in the mlb press release so this is the the first season which at least what they are calling a balanced schedule since interleague play was introduced in 1997 so you have division games so of 52 total games against divisional opponents down from 76 so only 13 games four series against each divisional opponent down from 19 games across six series. So you have seven home games and six away games against each of your divisional opponents. So 26 home, 26 away against your division. Then you have 64 total intra league games, 32 home and 32 away, against non divisional league opponents. So that's down only two from 66. So right. you play six games against six league opponents and seven games against four league opponents. Then you have 46 total games against interleague opponents. Up from 20. So that's a big difference here. So you play a home and home series against your natural rival. So that's four games total. Some teams natural rivals are more of a rivalry than others. Then you have 42 games against other interleague opponents, including seven at home and seven on the road. So... I kind of like it. There's a, a quote here from MLB's Chris Maranac, the new balanced schedule feature all 30 clubs playing against each other for at least one series in 2023. This new format creates more consistent opponent matchups as clubs compete for postseason berths, particularly in the recently expanded wildcard round. Additionally, this fan-friendly format provides fans with the opportunity to see more opponent matchups with a particular focus on dramatically expanding our most exciting interleague matchups and offers more national exposure to these star players through our game so we always take a a critical eye to MLB statements but no lie detected there for me, right. at least. I, I'm I'm on board with this plan. I think it is a benefit. Obviously, like it it tears down whatever slight distinctions still exist between leagues, really. And so we'll basically just be at conferences at that point. There's no functional difference really between AL and NL anymore. But unless you're particularly attached to distinctions between leagues, I like this from a competitive standpoint and a fairness standpoint. And I think I like it from an exposure standpoint. Like, you know, I guess you could say, like, it'll be a little less special certain matchups that you don't see for a period of years. And then when you do get to see them, whether it's in the World Series or in the regular season from time to time, it's like, oh, we haven't seen these two teams play in a while. Right Now you'll just see everyone play against each other all the time. But it seems like a good thing, especially when you're in this era where it seems like a lot of fandom of, of Major League Baseball is regional and local. And so maybe you're not paying attention on a national level. And I think we'd like that to be the case more and for MLB to make an effort to promote that more. But while we are where we are, it seems like a, a decent idea to just have everyone play each other so that as a fan who's maybe watching only one team predominantly, you still get to see everyone. And maybe you get to feel like you have a better handle on the league as a whole than you would otherwise.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that that's right. I think I get I get the old attachments, but like I, for one, am excited that I will get to watch the Seattle Mariners play the Arizona Diamondbacks in Arizona next year. That's nice. I'm mostly, you know, not having the playoffs extend so far into November is good, but mostly Ben, you know what's nice? It's August 24th and I know when opening day is. I know. That is nice. Yeah. I know when it's going to (laughs) be. I know when it's going to be. I can plan a bunch of stuff. I won't do it today because, again, it's only August 24th and I'm planning like, you know, I'm worried about what our postseason coverage is going to look like. I'm not like worried about it, but that's what I'm, you know, that's what's occupying my managerial energy at the moment is like, hey, let's Mm -hmm. figure out what our postseason schedule looks like. But it's so nice. Like if I really wanted to, if I get bored later today and I've done everything else I need to do I could just sit down and plan out positional power rankings Ben I could just do it so great
1: I know Yeah, what, with the r- uh, pandemics and CBA yeah, talks man. and everything, it's it's been a while since we could take for granted yeah. just like knowing when the baseball season starts. Yeah, <laughs> and I and nice.
0: yeah, and like me being able to satisfy my own compulsions to organize—that's like the one of the least important parts of any of this, right? In the <laughs> grand scheme of things, I know people don't care about that, but I care, and mm-hmm. I'm so happy I get to like say hey. You know, March 30th, how many days do we run PPRs? Just back it up and then put that stuff on the Fangraphs Google Calendar and not think about it for another couple months. Awesome. Good. Happy for
1: you. Happy for everyone. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I love this for me. And not in the like (laughs) ironic, you Mm -hmm. know, people are saying, thanks, I hate it. No, I love it. I love it for me and for Mm -hmm. everyone else too.
1: Yep. All right. So let's end with The Past Blast. This is episode 1893. So this comes from 1893 and also from Richard Hirschberger, saber historian, researcher, author of Strike Four, The Evolution of Baseball. And this one involves shenanigans with the ball, Mm. as related in the Pittsburgh Press of January 16th. So the quote is, There are a lot of things about baseball that very few people outside of professions know, said one of the local players last evening. In the first place, whenever a new ball was thrown out last season and we were in the field, it was tossed to the pitcher who put his private mark on the same so the visitors could not change the ball. With our pitchers, it was the custom to put two marks with a long fingernail on the ball across one of the seams, which would remain there as long as the ball was in play. About half a dozen times last season, the ball got pretty well greased in the outfield, and it was pretty hard to hit. In using a greased ball, our pitchers always had a lot of powdered rosin in their pockets, and it wasn't very hard to keep control of the ball. Now and then, when the visitors were hitting too hard, we substituted brotherhood balls. The catcher usually made this change, keeping the brotherhood ball concealed under his chest protector and, when signaled, making a lightning change. That old, innocent-looking guy, Connie Mack, is full of such tricks. With that long arm of his, I have seen him stand behind the batter, and with a ball coming over the plate, he would push his big gloved hand under the bat and lift the stick ever so lightly when the batter was trying to make a bunt or sacrifice hit. All of these tricks are played so nice and easy that it sometimes took the visitors some time to get on. The professionals never kick on these little pieces of byplay, but they make a mental memorandum of the same. And if the trick is useful, do not hesitate to use them as they are not patented. So Richard writes, I am not certain what the point was of greasing the ball. In the spitball era of a decade later, the purpose was understood to be to reduce the friction between the ball and the pitcher's hand, to let the ball slide off the fingers. Why then would the pitcher use rosin? Heck, if I know, if nothing else, we see here that the application of foreign substances to the ball was well understood well before the spitball rose to prominence. So, yeah, I suppose that just goes to show that the ball has been doctored in one way or another basically since the start. But it is interesting that initially all the rage was like greasing or slicking up the ball. And more recently, it's been about improving your grip and, you know, just like having it be tackier and, and stickier so that it does not slide off of your fingers so that you're able to get a better grip than ever and to enhance your spin rate. So. I guess there are a couple different effects you might be going for there, like when you're loading up the ball with grease or spit or whatever it was, then you're affecting the movement of the ball through the air, right? And And right. the air resistance and the way that the air is acting on the ball and the forces and how they're being applied. And you might end up with some more unpredictable ball movement through the air. Whereas now, if you're trying to load up the ball with something sticky so that you get a good grip, it's about like really being able to grip it and rip it so that you can get the maximum spin and efficiency and movement. So maybe it's two different ways to achieve two different aims. But I guess the consistent theme is that we'll use whatever we can use and get away with (laughs) in order to improve our pitching, whether it's the 19th century or the 21st. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to Richard for the past blast as usual, and we will be back very soon because we've got a late start to this week. We did. It's my fault. Yeah, that's okay. You took a couple of days off, not even to go see your professional basketball team in its championship, but just no. to have a couple of days off. Just to have that's some okay days off. because you're a podcaster and a managing editor. Yeah. And we accept that people in such professions might take a little time off we now do. and then, as opposed to being a catcher for a major league team when it's just off uh, for Boaton. How dare you quitting on grind. your team? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll be back soon. All right, before I leave you, I have a few follow-ups and corrections from last week. The first is that when we did a meter Major Leaguer segment on Brennan Bernardino, I mentioned that he had played for the 2018 Winnipeg Goldeyes, the independent league team in the American Association. However, I did not say Goldeyes; I said Golden Eyes. Clearly had the 25th anniversary this week of GoldenEye 007 on the brain. It is, in fact, Gold Eyes, not Golden Eyes. A couple of listeners wrote in to point this out, including Al, who said it is the Winnipeg Goldeyes, not Goldeneyes. The Goldeye is a fish commonly found in Manitoba, and the baseball team is one of our only nice things. Please at least give us this. Sorry, Al. I'm sure there are other nice things in Manitoba. But yes, it's the Goldeyes, and if you want more on the Goldeyes, check out episode 1085, when we devoted most of an episode to a strange game played by the Winnipeg Goldeyes. I did say it correctly back then. Also, last time I included a couple broadcaster mix-ups of Angels outfielder Taylor Ward's name. I also messed up myself when recording that outro, which I acknowledged and included my little blooper reel of me messing it up the first time. What I did not notice was that during the episode proper, I had called Brandon Marsh Brandon Walsh. So even when I and producer Dylan caught one of my Angels or former Angels names mistakes, we did not catch one of the others. It's just hard with all the Wards and the Wades and the Marshes and the Walshes. So it was fitting that I screwed up that name in a way that I did not even notice. And also, one of those broadcaster screw-ups I played was Dave Sims, I believe, calling Taylor Ward Turner Ward, It had slipped my mind at that moment that Turner Ward was himself a Major League Baseball player, although not for some time. But he was an outfielder who played for several teams from 1990 to 2001, so perhaps that's what Sims was thinking of. These days, Turner Ward is an assistant hitting coach for the Cardinals, so who knows, maybe he's the one who fixed Albert Pujols. And while we're on the subject of Ward mistakes, listener Danny wrote in to say, I would like to bring to your attention that neither Tyler Wade nor Taylor Ward needs to be in a game for the names to be mixed up. In the top of the third inning of the Giants at Rockies game on Friday, August 19th, the Rockies radio announcer, whom I believe was Jerry Corrigan, was talking about Lamont Wade Jr. and dropped a Lamont Ward but immediately realized his mistake and corrected himself. I'll play that for you here. Two outs, nobody on. Lamont Warren, Wade I should say, is the hitter, the right fielder it's really more of a lamont warn than wade or ward kind of got caught in between there but danny continues this makes me think that all announcers know about the rash of wade ward mix-ups and are on edge for every instance of any player named either wade or ward in this case the pressure got to the announcer and he slipped much to the amusement of this effectively wild listener And now, all Effectively Wild listeners. Thank you, Danny. Also, I did a stat blast last time on players with negative win probability added totals who had the highest wars ever. And I reported that Adrian Beltre in 2010, who was a six plus Fangrafts war player, he had a very slightly negative WPA. And so he held the distinction, at least since 1974, of having the highest war of any player with a negative WPA. We were trying to puzzle out how that had happened, and we noted that he had a lot of double plays that year. So maybe some high leverage double plays had contributed to it. A few listeners wrote in to note that it seemed like the leaderboard of high war negative WPA players was popular. By a lot of defense first players. And that's an excellent point because one of the limitations or simplifications of WPA is that it credits run prevention to the pitcher, not to the fielder. So if a lot of your war value is coming from your defense, then that's not really going to be accounted for by your WPA. And so it would be easier for a high war player to be a negative WPA player if a greater percentage of his war is coming from his defensive value. So I looked at it again. This time, substituting for war, I used offense, which is a fan graph stat that just takes into account your runs above average as a batter and as a base runner without positional adjustment or anything like that. And if we go by that, then 2010 Adrian Beltre still toward the top of the list. He's actually third because in addition to being a good defender, he was quite a good hitter, especially that year. He had a 140 WRC plus, so he still shows up toward the top. But the highest offense-only player with a negative WPA since 74 is another Boston Red Sox, Bill Miller, in 2003. So that year, Bill Miller was worth 4.7 fan graphs but he had a 31.9 offense score. So he was like 32 runs above average basically as a base runner and batter, and he had a negative .55 WPA. And it looks like his issue was unclutchness that year. He had a 938 OPS plus overall, but a 668 OPS in late and close situations. He had a 1322 OPS when the score difference was greater than four runs in either direction and only a 760 or so when it was a tie game or within one run. So he didn't have a clutch year that year, and that's how he ended up on top. So it was 2003 Bill Miller, 1991 Chris Sabo. And then 2010, Adrian Beltre. After that, 1996, Jose Canseco. 1985, Mike Davis. And I'll put the rest of the list online, linked on the show page. This year's leader, by the way, with one of the top 20 scores all time, is Xander Bogarts. Negative 0.2 WPA, 18.9 offense. Lastly, we had a question about recursive caps. So a baseball cap that would have a character on it who was wearing the same cap. I put out a call for candidates and Joseph wrote in to note the 1978 Orioles hat actually does feature the Oriole bird wearing a hat with the Oriole bird on it. However, it's just the outline of the bird wearing a cap. So there's not enough detail for multiple levels of recursion, but there's sort of an implied cap recursion there. So thanks for the suggestion, Joseph. I will put a link to that photo online as well. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Cal Pringle, Jeff is a Geek, Adrian Pineda, SH, and Soren O'Connell. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters get access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. Great discussion of the podcast and baseball and life in general going on at all hours there. You also get access to bonus episodes that Meg and I host, discounts on t-shirts, playoff live streams, and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast at You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back to talk to you soon.